0: Welcome to the Media Law Podcast with me, Colette Allen, and I'm joined today by Tom. We've got a lot to get through. Um, Obviously, we'll be addressing the Prince Andrew interview that aired this Saturday, paying particular reference to the argument that he waived his right to privacy by subjecting himself to the court of public opinion. We will also be talking about Labour MP for Kensington and Chelsea, Emma Dent Code, and her reporting of her Liberal Democrat rival to the Metropolitan Police under the Representation of the People Act. Finally, we will be addressing the Prime Minister debate that aired on Tuesday between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, which notably did not include other key members who claimed to be in the race for political leadership, Joe Swinson of the Liberal Democrats and Nicola Sturgeon of the Scottish National Party. But first, I want to briefly mention a ruling that came out of the Birmingham courts last week, brought by the press to lift the anonymity of two policemen. This was a Section 11 of Court Act prohibiting the publishing... Um, of the two names of the police involved, and what I found interesting when this came onto my radar is that Section Eleven was initially put in place to protect black male victims and to encourage them to come forward, but it's increasingly being used by the defense the police um to kind of allow blanket anonymity so you could say that the successful application by The Times, BBC, and The Guardian to name the two offers to name the two officers was raising a, a really interesting point, which is why should the police have protective anonymity as just a blanket rule? Obviously, we need to be careful of contempt of court on this area because the case is still ongoing. But I don't know if you have any p- comments on this, Tom.
1: Well, this is the case of the two police officers who've been charged with the murder of the former footballer, Dalian Atkinson. He died after being tasered by police Back in 2016, um, there was a significant amount of public interest at the time because Dalian Atkinson had been a, a high profile footballer uh, some years previously. The question of anonymity always involves questions of public interest. So what I would say is, A, there can never be blanket anonymity whilst maintaining compatibility with Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to freedom of expression, because the Strasbourg court abhors blanket rules on things like this. Um, And B, when you have a case as high profile as this on a subject matter that is high profile not only because of the identity of the victim, but also because of the use of the particular weapon Uh, that was deployed against uh, the victim. Um, We don't know because it hasn't come out in court exactly what the cause of death was, but we do know a taser was used in the incident. Um, And so because of those two things together, I think uh, the decision is absolutely right. Any kind of blanket anonymity cannot be sustained. Um, And it's important that the court overturn Uh, anonymity orders in these sorts of circumstances on the principle of open justice and i note that uh, counsel for the two police officers agreed to the lifting of the order uh, during the hearing um, having clearly realized that it it wasn't going to be sustainable
0: okay um we'll move on to eminent code so this is the labour mp for kensington and chelsea who alleges that her Liberal Democrat rival, Sam Gehmer, falsely accused her of having a role in the Grenfell cladding decision because she was local councillor at the time. Uh, After giving him several days to withdraw his comments, she eventually reported him to the Metropolitan Police on Sunday. Tom, what's the nature of the complaint she made under the Representation of the People Act?
1: Okay, so under the Representation of the People Act, and this... There's There have been a number of these acts. It's all to do with um, elections. And every so often they're, they're updated. Going back right to the end of the 19th century, there have been provisions that prohibit um, people during election campaigns from publishing false statements of fact in relation to the personal character or conduct of a parliamentary candidate unless, uh, and the current the current version of this offence has a defence um, whereby if the person making the statement has reasonable grounds to believe the statement is true, then they will not be held liable. So, immedent code has made a complaint to the Metropolitan Police in respect of the uh, comments that have been put out there by uh, Sam Gamer. Um They were not originally his comments. He's, uh, in effect, rehashing uh, some untrue allegations that were made very shortly after the Grenfell disaster um, that eminent code had been involved in the decision to approve a particular type of cladding. Um, during her time as a local councillor um, the allegations were false but they led to uh, a number of threats including death threats against uh, Emma Dent Code and her staff at the time so when Sam Gima a couple of years later um, republishes these allegations um she is not only outraged as a parliamentary candidate uh, in terms of the electioneering of it but also says that she is genuinely fearful for her safety and the safety of her staff and right so that's the basis of her complaint
0: do you think this could potentially go into a tort claim as well i mean given that in the interview over the weekend she gave to the Guardian. She did mention this fear that she's having that she might be the target of violence. Do you think perhaps there's uh, an old Wilkinson tort of willful infringement of the right to personal safety in this?
1: Well, this is the reframing of the old Wilkinson and Downton tort that um, the Supreme Court gave us in the case of uh, Rhodes and uh, MLA a few uh, years ago now, quite recent case. Um, I think that it is entirely possible that one could argue the elements of liability for the tort of willful infringement of personal safety are made out uh, in this case. And the advantage of bringing a tort claim would be the ability to secure interim injunctive relief. Um, If one could secure the interim relief, then one could... uh, See Gima ordered to retract and r- remove that statement from whatever platforms he's currently um, got it out on. I don't know if he's retracted the statement publicly since he made it. Um, I haven't heard that he has, but he might want well to. I haven't have
0: either. I don't either. Um,
1: So, the advantage of a tort game is potentially in injunctive relief, but there is a problem with uh, uh, a claim in tort and that is in order for the common law to be compatible with article 10 of the european convention on human rights in any case where you're looking at restricting political speech there has to be an article 10 that is right to freedom of expression based defense read into the tort uh, in order to protect genuinely political speech that is proportionate um, to the aim of uh, addressing the public interest. Um, so this is hinted at in, uh, in the Rhodes case, because that's relevant in, in, in the Rhodes case, and you get quite a, a lot of discussion in the Supreme Court about the, the public interest. So the question becomes, is there sufficient public interest um, in the allegations or at least in the contribution that the allegations make to a debate of general public importance to justify not granting injunctive relief um I, I think that's be i think it's highly dubious given that these have been widely debunked uh a couple of years ago um and and it really does look like uh, electoral mudslinging um that's going on here um, I, and But it would be very interesting to see just how publicly dim a view the courts are prepared to take of deliberate, knowing publication of false statements of fact. In other words, around election time, are the courts prepared to stick their neck out and call out fake news for what it wow. is?
0: Yeah, and arguably not, because it seems this week that the courts are very reluctant to get involved in the publicity around elections with the ITV decision.
1: So the ITV case, uh, this came before the divisional court um, in the Queen's Bench Division. Uh, on Tuesday of this, was it Monday or Tuesday? It ended up in Monday. Court. I think Monday was in, court forward, that debate was in
0: court. The debate that was going to be aired on Tuesday.
1: Yeah, so this ended up in court on Monday. Uh, the Liberal Democrat Party and the Scottish National Party sought a judicial review of ITV's decision to broadcast a head-to-head political debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn but not to include the leaders of any other British political party. Um, Both the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish National Party had grounds for believing that they ought to be represented in that debate. It's relevant to this that uh, whilst they were not invited to take part in the debate... The the broadcaster did subsequently, about an hour after the end of the debate, which finished at 9 o'clock, at 10 o'clock they broadcast, and had planned to broadcast, interviews with the leaders of the other major parties. Um, so there was going to be some degree of representation on the channel in uh, what the broadcaster called a series of linked programmes. Um, over the course of the evening. Nevertheless, um, the Lib Dems and the SNP uh, thought they were not going to be sufficiently represented.
0: And so they didn't feel they were going to be sufficiently represented. And it was uh, Mr Justice Davies and Warby who said that the court has no grounds to intervene on this because it was an editorial decision by the ITV And ITV wasn't exercising a public function. So what I wonder is, would it have been different if the BBC hosted the interview? Could could the BBC be open to judicial review?
1: Okay, so we have to take this one step at a time. Um, The decision um, that ITV makes, first, if it is to be judicially reviewed, has to be amenable to judicial review and only decisions made by public bodies or in some limited circumstances by private bodies or quasi-private bodies that are exercising public functions are amenable to judicial review. The basic rule is that if you're to be open to judicial review, you have to be a public body. Um, The claim immediately failed, the application failed on that ground, because ITV... Uh, is not a public body, Uh, nor is it exercising a public function um, when it broadcasts its television shows. It's a private uh, company. It's there to make money um, through uh, broadcasting and raising revenue through advertising. So it's simply not amenable to judicial review at all. On that basis, the claim is uh, not permitted to proceed. The court goes on to say that even if it had been permitted to proceed, they would have ruled in favor of the broadcaster anyway because of uh, the level of discretion that has to be given to editorial judgment. It is not as if uh, the editors had chosen to exclude the other parties entirely from the evening's programming, Um, but arguably they could even have done that if they had a good reason to do so.
0: Would that not have been an issue for a representation and um, evening out the playing field in terms of how many people or how many different parties are represented in any one situation?
1: They would have had to find some way to ensure that in a reasonably proportionate fashion, um, the perspectives of the different major parties competing for votes at the election were represented that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a particular equivalent representative from the party it would be good practice oftentimes to do so um but not every political party has to be represented in uh, in every bit of programming in order to maintain impartiality and that's why you see minor political parties getting far less coverage Take the Green Party, for instance. The Green Party is a significant number of uh, members of the European Parliament uh, from the United Kingdom, but it gets very little coverage, even right. though for, it gets far less coverage, for example, than the than UKIP or the Brexit Party have in recent elections, despite the fact that the Brexit Party has no members of Parliament. The UKIP has, for a short period, had one or two members of Parliament, but has not done so for a long time whereas the Green Party have had a Member of Parliament for a very long time. Yeah. Um, Caroline Lucas has been yeah, MP for, um, for for Brighton and, and Hove for a significant amount of time. So, not Brighton and Hove, Brighton Pavilion, she is, isn't she? Brighton, Brighton Pavilion, can't even say it. Yeah. Um, she's uh, been the MP there for a long time. So they don't have to represent all of the parties uh equally in order to uh, be impartial. Now, You you ask about the BBC. Um, The position of the BBC in respect of its amenability to judicial review has never been absolutely clarified by the courts. Uh, In the Quinterville case, uh, the court proceeded on the basis of an assumption um, which was simply conceded by counsel that the BBC would be amenable to judicial review, Um, but the court hasn't actually considered that in detail itself Um, so we've generally assumed that because the BBC is established by Royal Charter and because it more overtly conducts public functions and operates um, with public scrutiny uh, and a degree of public oversight it does all of that more than other broadcasters. We've assumed that it's going to be amenable to judicial review, in which case, if we're right about that as lawyers, um, then the situation would have been different with the BBC, uh, at least in respect of the amenability question. But you'd still come up against deference to editorial judgment and um, the issue of, What is the appropriate forum in which to deal with these sorts of disputes? One of the points that the divisional court makes is that the courts are not the appropriate forum to be resolving this. The appropriate forum to deal with complaints about programming is Ofcom, the broadcast regulator. Because the problem with that is it's after the fact. Um, Ofcom don't make prospective decisions. They can rebuke and sanction broadcasters down the line after they've made the decision. Uh, After the election is gone and done, and no doubt there will be complaints and maybe someone will get a slap on the wrist. Um, That is the problem. If you want an effective remedy, then the only body that can really give it to you prospectively is the court. But If the court's not willing to do so, uh, and there are good reasons the court should not be willing to do so. Um, amenability to do judicial review um, is not a subject to be uh, taken lightly and played around with uh, because it sets precedent.
0: <laughs> well, I was. Uh, do, do you disagree with Sal Brinson saying that um, this was not just a disappointing verdict for the Liberal Democrats, but also for democracy? Because I was quite struck by that. Quite by that statement, thinking that it's this could just be very verbose political language because the laws don't actually need to change in this area. The the fact that we have a high standard for just judicial review is a good thing.
1: I'm not sure that this decision on its own is particularly problematic for um, democracy. Um, I think that the objection that can validly be raised is um, that broadcasters around election time are not amenable to judicial review. Now, if the court alters that in a particular case and says, you know what, we will review the decisions by ITV and gives it whatever reason for doing so, it sets a precedent that could then be applied to other types of private body doing something of public interest at a time of national political significance. And that potentially sets a very broad precedent. The court won't be comfortable doing that. And there are quite good reasons why the court should not be comfortable doing that. Um, The way to resolve it would be by legislation. And to say, notwithstanding the usual rules to do with amenability to judicial review, we will regard broadcasters at election time as amenable to to judicial review in respect of decisions pertaining to the manner in which they organise election broadcasts, political broadcasts. You could do that by legislation, um, but you'd need a government willing to introduce legislation and chances of a government that have just been very successful in an election campaign coming and changing the rules pertaining to how that campaign can be represented in the media are fairly slim.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, so just before we run out of time, one thing I found hilarious about the ITV debate was that Prince Andrew made an appearance because we clearly can't talk about anything without mentioning Prince Andrew at the moment. So finally, we should briefly talk about Prince Andrew um, and particularly Mark Stevens' suggestion that he's waived his right to privacy. Um, and so this is a quote from the Guardian by the media lawyer um, that says if. Prince Andrew had kept silent, he would have been able to remain outside the case as he's a witness and entitled to diplomatic immunity. Is this true? Is a royal actually entitled to diplomatic immunity? And has he waived his right to privacy just by giving an interview? Uh,
1: I think that, well, I'm going to assume that Mark Stevens um, is, is correct on that. I'm not an expert on diplomatic immunity, but I do know that Prince Andrew has been doing work as a trade envoy and it's possible he either gets it through his royal status or he may get it through his envoy status. I'm not quite sure what the basis for it is. Um, He makes a very interesting point there um, to do with waiving a right to privacy. Um, This might, I suppose, have an effect on any investigations being undertaken into... um, the activities of the uh, now deceased uh, Jeffrey Epstein in the United States. Um, So uh, not being an an expert in diplomatic community, I I can't really speak to that. But what I, I do think is that when we're talking about domestic law in respect of a person's private life, there are obviously going to be questions very searching questions asked of prince andrew in the weeks and months to come there might have been a time when he could have tried to stay out of it um uh, and if people made allegations that he thought pertained to his private life he might have been able to bring misuse of private information claim to shut those down that certainly won't be possible now that he's come out and spoken about it in public. Um, It may well not have been possible anyway, however, given the level of public interest in this whole affair and the extent of the involvement of a royal in it, or lack of involvement. Um, I I think that that is all a matter of clear public interest. So um, my my own view is, um, yes, he has waived what little of his right to privacy was left i'm not convinced that there was very much um but uh, i would not be surprised uh to learn that, that, that this also had an effect uh in respect of uh, his diplomatic immunity such as it is um and, and and put him in some jeopardy i'll defer to mark stevens on that because he really is the expert
0: <laughs> the expert okay well i think that's all we've got time for thank you very much for joining me tom thank you and as ever please follow us at media law podcast on twitter for every daily updates on all things media law thank you very much bye Bye.